Here are the St. Michael singers with Cardinal Newman's hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height and in the Depths Be Praise.
Murdo McLeod's song. It's called The Love of God. a successful rugby player and he's still a regular rugby commentator and journalist. Michael Barclay talks to Brian about his background and particularly the influence of his mother. Brian Moore is a man of many parts 
Nicknamed the Pitbull for his fiercely competitive attitude on the rugby field, he won 64 England caps, playing in three World Cups and in the sides which won three Five Nations Grand Slams. He toured twice with the British Lions and in 1991 he was voted Rugby World Player of the Year. But he's also had a parallel career as a city solicitor, is much in demand as a rugby commentator, has written for newspapers, not just about sport, but wine too. He's a passionate fan of Tolkien and Shakespeare, writes books, loves motorbikes and skiing, and even trained as a manicurist when his then-wife opened a nail bar in Soho. So you've packed a huge amount into your 58 years, and you said, I don't think any top sportsman or woman is normal. There's something about them. There's a bit of madness, a pathology. Because you probably have to have some form of innate drive to keep you going to the levels at which you get very successful, certainly internationally. It doesn't have to be, as it was in my case, you know, um, unfortunate experiences that drive you through low self-esteem and, and things like that. It can be other things. But I generally find the more I meet people who've been successful at their sport, and indeed actually at other things, there is something that is a motivating factor which is beyond normal. One of the things people probably don't uh, couple are rugby pit bulls and classical music. <laughs> but I know that music is very important to you. Well, I was lucky. I mean, I grew up in a very eclectic household. And my father was a, was a licentiate of the Royal College of Music and used to play several instruments. My mother um, used to play instruments. In fact, everyone in the family at some point tried an instrument, um, some with great, greater degrees of success than others. And so from the earliest times in the house, there was a very wide variety of music and my dad used to make and play um, an instrument called the Hawaiian guitar, which is an unusual sort of fretboard played with a steel tube. And uh, and so it, it was just the case that I was lucky enough to be exposed to a huge variety and then I could make my mind up. We're going to hear pieces by Barber, Tchaikovsky and Mozart. But first, music which reminds you of your mother, Dorothy, who adopted you as a baby. Tell me a little bit more about her. She's a remarkable woman, still going strong at 92? Yes, she is. She had to leave school at 14 because her parents couldn't afford to send more than one of the children to school, to grammar school. They couldn't afford the uniforms. The thing about uh, mother is that not only at one point did she have six kids, four adopted, two natural. Um, at one point, there were five children under seven years age, so that must have been very difficult. But she also uh, was uh, a devout Methodist, both of them were lay preachers, but not in a not in a very forceful, pious way, but in a sort of quiet, uh, reverential way. And so she uh, was part of some of the Methodist missionaries that went to do work in Africa, self-taught on the old organ, and that's the one where you have not just the two keyboards, you have all the pedals and all the stops. But she's always moved with the times. At 92, because she can touch type, she's quite au fait with the internet. She's not technophobic, she will go online, she can do Zoom meetings. She's turned out to be, you know, a remarkably content um, progressive woman uh, from a background which could easily have gone 
uh, you know, a completely different way. I know she taught herself to play the organ, but actually the piece you've chosen is one of her favourite pieces by Mendelssohn, isn't it? It is. Yes, it's Fingal's Cave from Mendelssohn's The Hebrides. I hadn't quite realised until I looked into this, the background to him writing it and, you know, the physical proximity and, and so on, and it makes me enjoy it even more. And, of course, the association with the mother makes it everlasting. Music from the Hebrides Overture by Felix Mendelssohn, with John Elliott Gardner conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. Neil Glover is Minister of Aberfeldy Church of Scotland. Neil talks to Ramsay Beattie about what he and the church have been doing differently during the pandemic. It's Ramsay Beattie here on Heartland FM, and today I'm joined by Neil Glover, Minister for the Aberfeldy Parish Church. It's good to have you here with us today, Neil. Thanks very much, Ramsey, and uh, delighted to be here. I should probably say I'm the Minister for Dull and Weem and Grantley, Logate and Strathtay also, and uh, the patch I'm responsible for goes all the way from Keltneyburn just to the very edge of Pitlochry. Well, that's some responsibility to have in your hands. It's great. It's a very, very community. And I have to say there are a lot of congregations there who are very used to, to doing a lot of things themselves and um, almost always they make my life very easy. So I'm very grateful to them. And just on that note of community, I think we've seen across Highland Perthshire, especially throughout the pandemic, the bonds holding communities together, pulling through. Could you start just by telling us what you and the church have been doing to help people throughout this time? You're absolutely right. And I think one thing I've noticed, my wife Anna and I moved here with our family three years ago and we lived in Glasgow before that. One of the things we immediately noticed is the strength of community bonds here. I think it's to do with the geography that we're far enough away from a, a city that people have to connect with each other. And, yeah, there's been all sorts of things that have gone on. Most famously, of course, Feldy Roo, but all sorts of other people have done things individually. And as a church, things that we have been involved in, 
have been Community Larder that we, we set up. We're very grateful to the co-op who have helped us with that. They give us a lot of the food that uh, they don't sell. And that Community Larder has enabled us to engage and to support with people. On top of that, we've had a, a newsletter that's gone out. Initially, what we wanted to do was just let people know what was going on, to share ideas. And we've had dozens and dozens of people write to us with uh, articles and photographs and things that they've done. So those have been two of the things that, as a church, we've been responsible for. But on top of that, there's been uh, lots of things that people have done as individuals, lots of people who look out for neighbours. There's also our services, which we've done, and we, we know that uh, they're online and they're appreciated by, well, hundreds of people. We hope has, has made a bit of a difference. And what do you think, from your experience around the community, has been the greatest strain on people? I think probably loneliness now or a sense of isolation. Just recently we had a thing where we did a reading of a passage in the Bible which talks about lots of people being parts of a body. And so we thought what we'll do is we'll get lots of different people to read one verse out of this Bible passage. And what we discovered when we rang round folk Initially, a conversation was to say, you know, could you read verse 3 or verse 10? But people would then go on to fairly quickly just say how hard they're finding it at the moment, sometimes being apart from other people. I think, in particular, some of the lockdown restrictions, which meant that people haven't been able to see family, sometimes it shows up as simply missing them. Other times, people are having arguments or fights, and you think, I don't think this would be quite so bad during another time that, that we'd be able to, I guess, resolve things more quickly. So I think people are sometimes a bit more on edge. And I have to congratulate you on just how good your YouTube channel videos are looking. Thanks very much, Ramsey. Well, a lot of it's down to a guy called Jamie Pringle. Many of your listeners will know the Pringle family who live out in Dull, and he puts a lot of work into it. But I've really enjoyed doing it as well, going to different locations. I was out near Tenendry, just north of Pitlochry, yesterday, filming up in a field, a snowy field. Other places we've been to Soldier's Leap at Killycranky, and then up in Laws or around the River Tay in Logie or sometimes just in the hills up behind Weem. And it's been fantastic to show people the different parts of our area and just how beautiful it is. So what has the response to you putting this out there been? Well, in terms of the services, lots of people have engaged. I'm not quite sure the numbers we would normally get on a, a Sunday morning, but most of the videos get between 600 and 700 views. And you can go into YouTube and find out how many individual people that is. And it's between 300 and 400 most times. So that's more then we'd be coming to our congregations on a Sunday morning. So the people from all over Scotland have responded. I've got an old friend who, who sends me a, a two-page uh, crit of most services, which is actually really good because he knows what he's talking about. Um, and uh, people from America have watched as well. So it's, it's been wonderful to connect in that way. And we're vaccinating at quite an astonishing rate, especially across the Tayside area. Is this something maybe you're thinking to keep up after the pandemic? I think one of the things that we've learned as a church is we're not going to go back to the way it was before. Things are going to be different. People might meet in smaller groups. People might connect online. We don't quite know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be different. But on top of that as well, I think when we do go back, I think I really want to find a way of celebrating that, that the one Sunday when we are eventually allowed to return. I really hope as many of us as possible can, can gather and just celebrate what it is that we have in each other. There's an Irish poet called Podrigo Toomey, who I really like, and he has a phrase, I don't know if it's his own or not, he got it from someone. He says it's in the shelter of each other that we live. It's in the shelter of each other that we live. And I don't know if, if everybody knows, there's a cemetery just behind Logie Ray called Hillhead Cemetery, and it's high up and it's exposed. And I remember once being at a funeral up there, and it's really cold, and the wind was blowing in, and people were huddled together. This was before the, the epidemic. And people were huddled together, and I had a vision that, 
it was a bit like some of the pictures that you sometimes see of a group of penguins together in Antarctica and, and the wind's blowing in but because they're close to each other they're able to shelter each other and what happens of course is that the penguins take turns to work out who's going to go on the outside and who's going to get warmed up on the inside and I think for me that's been an image of what this time has been like of looking out for each other and sometimes you're on the outside and sometimes you're on the inside but it is in the shelter of each other that we live and I think the truth of that has become so apparent over these last months. Well, that's such a profound message to finish on. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Neil. Ramsey, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's in the shelter of each other we live. Now, there's a thought for these difficult times. Neil Glover was talking to Heartland FM's Ramsey Beatty. Music? Uh, St Paul says that we love him because he first loved us. Here is the Sheffield Celebration Choir and My Jesus, I Love Thee.
And it's Elvis Presley with one of my favourites of his, actually. It is His Hand in Mine. You may ask me how I know my Lord is real. My I say and doubt the way I feel the way I feel but I know he's real today he'll always be he'll always be I can feel his hand in mine and that's enough has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. That's me all over. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my fingers in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. I've always had a soft spot for old Thomas, but it does seem reasonable to assume that he was meant to be with the others in this locked house. Keen cricketers will be aware that the twelfth man must be physically present for all important fixtures. He was one of Jesus' original followers. Of course he was supposed to be there when that joy-filled, astonished band of disciples felt the Spirit breathed upon them and had the power of spiritual life and death placed into their hands. Why was he missing? Well, I don't know for certain, but we can guess from the little we know of Thomas that his absence might well have been due to some typically negative attitude to, on this occasion, the idea of gathering together. Honest but pig-headed, he failed. He wasn't there when Jesus came. He thought he knew, but he didn't. How strange it would be for Thomas to come back to earth two millennia after the events recorded here, to find that his name is permanently associated with the concept of doubt. I hope it doesn't happen to me. Can you imagine the gossip in church circles 2,000 years from now? Well, he's all right, really. A bit of an irritable Adrian, if you know what I mean. Pray with me. We feel quite nervous about stepping aside from what we are, don't we, Father? Why do we let these dominating personality traits lead us by the nose? Lord, we don't want to be trapped by these silly things. Help us to find enough courage to experiment with leaving them out. Amen. Adrian Plus. And the next song is for any of us who, like Thomas perhaps, may be struggling with faith. Here's Sila with When I Feel My Faith Will Fail, Christ Will Hold Me Fast. Delight, Christ will hold me fast. 
The Dalai Lama is 85 years old and he's been exiled from Tibet for 60 years. Many people are worried that the Chinese Communist government will replace the Dalai Lama with a puppet who they are training in Peking. Ernie Ray talks to several experts about the amazing qualities of the present Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is arguably the most respected religious leader in the world. His engaging personality and humanitarian teaching have gained him almost universal appreciation. In 1959, he went into exile from his beloved homeland of Tibet, and he has never returned. For 60 years, he's been based in Dharamsala in northern India. In exile, he's become much more than a Tibetan spiritual leader. But what do we know about him and his beliefs? He's now 85 years old, and there is great concern that when he dies, the Chinese government will try to control the process of replacing him. How relevant is the Dalai Lama in today's world? How do we rate his achievements? Joining me to discuss the Dalai Lama, the man in his office, are Kate Saunders, a writer and independent specialist on Tibet, Professor Robbie Barnett, former Director of Modern Tibetan Studies at Columbia University and now Professorial Research Associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And Andrew Quintman is Associate Professor of Religion at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, who specialises in the Buddhist traditions of Tibet. You've all met the Dalai Lama. I'd like you to sum him up in a few sentences. Kate. Please a fully realised human being with a firm handshake. There's nothing ephemeral about him. He's got a laser focus, which is rare in our time of infinite distractions. He's, he's very funny, sometimes surprisingly. And he's an environmentalist too. He says that the Buddha would be green. Robbie, what's your impression of him? When I first met him, I was stunned by his quality of attention. It's like for the first time you've ever had somebody really listen seriously to you. It's not actually a pleasant experience. It's kind of devastating because you suddenly realise what you say really matters. This person is really seriously listening. It's quite astonishing to actually have that experience of someone being that much in the present and that much open to other people's ideas. And Andy? Well, I was extraordinarily fortunate to be able to arrange several dozen student groups to have uh, private audiences with His Holiness in Dharamsala over the years. And I was struck really by the genuineness and openness that he brings to all of his encounters with everyone, I think, especially with young people, uh, even from cultures and places far distant from his own. And I was struck by his ability to relate to individuals on their own terms, whether he's, you know, speaking to a group of insider Buddhists or whether he's speaking to a broader uh, audience where he likes to say that his religion is kindness. Well, I met him just once about 25 years ago in Manchester, and I was only speaking to him for less than a minute, I guess, but, but I felt that he was looking at me as if I was the only person in the world, that he was listening very carefully. I felt that I was in the presence of holiness and compassion, and I came away thinking that he was a gift to humankind. I think we should hear from him at this point in the programme. Now my main practice is altruism, compassion, concern, well-being of others. Practice of altruism. That's the best way to fulfill your own peace of mind and your own future the spiritual higher goal, including Buddhahood. Altruism practice, you see, reduce 
self-centered, narrow-minded. Very helpful. Now some scientists say the constant experience of anger, hatred, actually eating our immune system. Robbie, do you feel that clip sort of sums him up? This very interesting, remarkable feature of him is that he, he is a man with many layers. This is the layer that we hear there of the generalized introduction to Buddhism, his attempt to explain what he sees as the essence. And that's an explanation he gives particularly to foreigners, and especially when he's talking to people who aren't Buddhists, which he tries to do. But there's a huge other part of him, which is, especially when he talks in Tibetan, it's quite different. It's very particular, very focused, often extremely sophisticated intellectual discussion of scriptural and doctrinal issues. So there's vastly more to this man than we capture by listening to just that encapsulation of what he sees as the essential aspects of Buddhism for, for, shall we say, the international audience. Kate? It began as perhaps an exotic Shangri-La type approach, this uh, religious leader in uh, maroon robes. And then it became something that was in tune with your life, that was uh, aligned with very personal concerns of people who came into contact with the Dalai Lama. But that said, I think that since the 1970s, the Dalai Lama has really reshaped his role on the world stage. He began dialogue with scientists. He began to focus on education, to focus on the matter of compassion. And uh, he also focused on the importance of ecology and the environment and the planet. His position of promoting universal responsibility really predated our notions of, of globalisation. The Chinese invaded Tibet in 1950 when the Dalai Lama was just 15. He'd been living in Lhasa for about 12 years at that time. He's been living in exile for 61 years, Robbie, and I know you've said that exile is a personal and emotionally tragic burden for him. What do you mean? It was... 2011 when I got a special chance to talk to him about this and his answer was extraordinary. It was a description of what the pain had been like the night that he left Tibet, left Lhasa in 1959 and a description of the pain and terror that his brother had seen when the Chinese government allowed his brother to make a brief return visit to Tibet and he described the wounds that had been reported to him on the body of the Panchen Lama, the most senior Lama who remained in Tibet, didn't escape. And I realized from that conversation that this is a wound, this is an emotional scar for all of these Tibetans and also for the Dalai Lama. And he said, it's worse now than it was when I left. We'll leave you with Darlene Chek and Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you for this. 
Wash me in your cleansing, wash me, Lord. 